Grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 1. This morning we're going to continue our study of Lamentations chapter 1 verses 12 through 22. We were in this passage a little bit last week and as we were there last week we saw that these verses depict the sorrow felt by the people of Israel at the fall of Jerusalem. This is a lament. It is essentially a funeral poem that was written uh, as a result of the Babylonians coming and destroying the city of Jerusalem, killing many of its citizens and taking most of its citizens off into captivity. This was a time of death. This was a time of destruction. This was a time of complete total and utter despair. And what we read in this chapter is a poetic communication of what happened. Really, especially in the second half of chapter 1, we have described for us what it felt like to go through those events. And in the process of reading through and studying what happened and how it felt for those people, we also find here a warning about the sorrow that sin leads to. If we were to pick out one main point from verses 12 through 22, it would be the sorrow caused by sin in our inner man, in our soul, in the deepest recesses of who we truly are. Really, this passage reminds us that sin will consume us from the inside out if we let it. And it's important for us, even though this is a weighty and in some ways heavy and difficult study to do and passage to work through, as we saw last week, it's important for us to do so because our lives are so permeated with sin and the effects of sin that we've become desensitized to its danger. We're so used to living in a fallen world. We're so used to living with sin. We're so used to living with the temptation to sin that in many ways we've normalized it. All that God created good, but then fell because of sin, it's not the way ultimately it should be. The, the, the aches and pains that we wake up with, the relational tensions that we deal with, the the inner conflict, the, the, the lack of peace within our souls. These aren't the way things should be. They're the results of sin. For the unbeliever, Their hearts are so completely blinded to the extent of sin, their own culpability of sin, and the consequences of sin in their lives that they don't even see it. That's why people like us seem ridiculous. Why why go through all this trouble to serve and worship Christ? What's the big deal? Well, if you don't understand sin and its extent and our culpability in sin and the eternal consequences of sin, yeah, what we do looks ridiculous. 
Even for us as believers, though, we need to recognize that our own ability to discern sin and deal with it has been clouded and remains limited. The remaining sin that's in our heart, the remaining lustful desires that would lead us inward towards selfishness and further sin and away from Christ, these are all factors that cloud our objectivity when it comes to dealing with sin. In a very Puritan type way, the Puritan writer John Owen put it this way. Sin will darken the soul and deprive it of its comforts and peace. Sin darkens the soul. It is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all senses of the privilege of our adoption. And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them. That's a pretty good description of what sin will do in our hearts if we let it. Sin is devastating. And it will wreak havoc, not just in our lives and in the consequences around us, but sin will wreak havoc on our souls and our inner man. We've lost something of the sense of this reality in our culture today. By and large, our culture is, is predominantly naturalistic in its view towards man. That is, we're a biological creature. So if you're having problems like anxiety, uh, lack of peace, inner turmoil, all of these things, well, there must be a biological problem to it. And biological problems, how are biological problems solved? Biological problems are solved with biological solutions, mainly some type of pill that you can take for that. What this fails to recognize is the reality that, yes, we are a physical existence, but at the same time, we are a spiritual existence as well. We are spirit beings. We have a soul. There's something within us created in the image of God that cannot be defined and dissected biologically. And so all the biological solutions, look, a biological solution can take care of a biological problem if you have a biological problem. But a biological solution cannot solve a spiritual problem. It can dull the effects of it. It can distract you from it. It can't solve it. It can't solve it. And the problems that are deepest within us are the spiritual problems that are caused by sin. Sin is absolutely devastating. And friend, it will wreak havoc on your heart if you let it. And our passage this morning reminds us of this reality. The passage this morning gives us a glimpse of the, of the devastating internal grief and sorrow that results from sin. Now in the first half of Lamentations chapter 1, we, we view Israel from the outside. And we saw this last week. It's a description of, of Israel described as a widow. 
Here's what she went through. Here's what she went through. But then when we get to verse 12, all of a sudden the voice changes and it's not look at her. It's here I am. Listen to me. It's not the outside of perspective of what happened to Jerusalem. It is now the internal inside perspective. Here, Jerusalem is personified in describing here's what it felt like to endure the punishment of God. This text is a dramatic and at times disturbing reminder that no matter how good it feels in the moment, sin will ultimately destroy you from the inside out. That's what it does. Specifically, and we began to identify these last week, we can identify 11 sources of grief and sorrow that are connected with a life of sin. We saw the first five of these last week, and if you were here, you heard that. If not, you can download it on the website, and you've got some of those notes posted there in your bulletin. So we're going to just jump into the remaining six that we have left to cover. But understand this again. These 11, and we'll look at six today, sources of grief, it doesn't exhaust every possible source of grief and sorrow that, that might result from sin. And again, not everyone will experience this sorrow in the same way or in the same circumstances, of course. But, but taken in its totality, when we step back and see all that Jerusalem went through, all these sources of grief that they experienced, it is a reminder to us of what sin will do to your soul. For the believer in Christ Jesus... Sin will lead to grief in this life. A life of sin, the pursuit of sin, it will rob you of joy in Christ. It will rob you of spiritual fruit. It will rob you of spiritual comfort. It will rob you of everything that Christ has offered to you. For the unbeliever, for one who has not received the grace of Christ, Sin will lead to unceasing grief in hell. This is, this, is, this is a serious issue. If you want to know why the Scriptures say what they say about all these other areas of life and theology, you need to understand what it's saying right here about sin. And as we jump back in at verse 17... As we look at a sixth source of grief in this verse, you need to understand that sin will lead to a grief that comes from a lonely guilt. A lonely guilt. You see, this verse shows us how Jerusalem's sin led to a guilt before God, a guilt which she had to face alone. Verse 17 Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. Now, notice at this point that, that Zion, that is Jerusalem's weeping, is so intense that the prophet at this point has to step in and speak for her. 
If you look back at verse 16, you'll see that, that she says, I weep, my eyes flow with tears. And then for this one verse, it's almost like Jerusalem is pictured as weeping so much that she can't speak, and the prophet has to take a moment and speak for her. And what he says is that she stretches out her hand. She's, she is grasping for help. But really, all she's doing is grasping for air. Why? There is no one to comfort her. Her sin has led her under the guilt and condemnation of the Lord. It says, Yahweh, the Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. The Lord brought the Babylonians against him. And in that moment of, of guilt and punishment, who was there to help them? No one. In the New Testament, we read that for us as believers, if God is for you, who can be against you? And the answer is nobody and nothing. If God is for you, there is no one or no thing that can be against you. However, here we see the opposite of that principle at work, don't we? If God is against you, who can be for you? Who can stop the wrath of the Lord? And the answer is no one. No one. There was no one to share in this grief with Jerusalem. She was totally alone. In fact, not only was she alone, but she was alone in her disgusting guilt. It says Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The, the, the original Hebrew that this was written in is virtually too graphic for me to even fully explain in mixed company. But the point is that Jerusalem had become like a minstrel flow to the surrounding nations. She was untouchable. She was disgusting, filthy. Of course, that represents her guilt. What a reminder this is, by the way. This is, this is especially powerful for, for you young people in the room. Whether you're really young or, or, or you're in high school or college or just getting out on your own, whatever the case may be, you're starting to spread your wings. You're starting to figure out, wait a minute, I can direct a little bit more of my life than I used to be able to. You need to understand in the midst of all these decisions and directions that you're going in, but this passage reminds us that you may have a lot of company in your sin, but when it comes time for the consequences, it will be impossible to find a companion. Sin makes you guilty before God, and you will stand in that guilt alone. Alone. That should be a startling and scary thought for all of us who are sinners, which is to say, all of us. <laughs> when you are guilty before the Lord, you stand in that guilt alone. That is, of course, with one pretty significant exception, right? See, the only way 
that we as guilty, filthy, vile sinners before a holy God, the only way that we can have a companion, a friend, to protect us from that judgment is if we turn to the ultimate friend of sinners, Jesus Christ. If you reject Christ, you're going to stand alone, guilty before the holy judge of the universe. If you submit to Christ and believe in Him, then you will have a friend who can save you. Remember the picture of this that we see in Zechariah chapter 3? Here we see this vision of Joshua the high priest and he's before the Lord and Satan comes to make accusations against him. It says in Zechariah 3, just listen to it. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, which we believe to be Christ, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, is not this one of my chosen ones? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The word filthy there is the same word for filthy that we find in Lamentations chapter 1. How is it that Joshua the high priest could survive an encounter with God when when the, the filthy garments represent his guilt for sin? How is it he can survive an encounter with the holy God while he still has these filthy garments on? God's not going to change his standard to match Joshua's standard. What's his only hope? His only hope is that he's there with the angel of the Lord, Christ. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's what we want. We don't want to face the punishment and the guilt of sin alone. We want to face that judgment day protected by our friend Christ Jesus. We want Christ, the angel of the Lord, to remove our filthy garments from us and clothe us with the righteous garments of His righteousness. There is a grief from sin that leads to a lonely guilt and the only solution to that lonely guilt is to trust in Christ so that we can have the angel of the Lord standing by. Now notice back in Lamentations chapter 1, a seventh source of, source of grief in verse 18. Here we see a grief, a sorrow that comes from divine justice. Now, remember, we studied this a little bit at the beginning of our study of Lamentations, but a lament, a, 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 a funeral poem, essentially, These are in the Bible as a way of helping us to process suffering in light of biblical truth. And we start to see that in this verse. We've gotten just a description. Here's what's going on inside of Jerusalem. But now 
We're, we're starting to see God's truth shine onto this situation. And we're starting to see Israel, this widow, process her suffering in light of God's truth. And, and, and here's what it says, verse 18. The Lord is in the right. That's one of those moments where, where, where you need a Selah from the Psalms to just borrow it for a moment to pause and consider that, don't you? The Lord is in the right. How, given what she has endured, how could she possibly say that? For I have rebelled against His word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So here we see Israel's sobering theological perspective of this entire situation. And it's this. God was right to punish her. By the way, just kind of as an aside, when you have sinned and you are then dealing with the consequences of that sin in an ongoing way in your life, don't turn back in God and wag your finger at Him and say, why am I going through this? When you're dealing with the consequences of your sin in your life, humble yourself. Seek God's grace. But don't give the impression that you're suffering for righteousness. I just don't know why the Lord would let me go through this. Well, You need to have the same perspective that Jerusalem had in this verse. Literally, it's translated, the Lord is in the right. Literally, just a wooden little literal translation here would be Yahweh righteous. Or or maybe to, to clean it up in our English minds a little bit more. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. In other words, he did not violate his character and he did not violate his promises when he punished Israel. He acted according to his word, but but notice what Israel says. For I have rebelled against his word. See, the Lord's righteousness wasn't violated through this punishment. Actually, the Lord's righteousness necessitated this punishment because they had violated His covenant word. And now that Israel is going through this, Israel is recognizing we brought this upon ourselves. Israel is saying, hear all you people and see my sufferings. In other words... As she's enduring the punishment of the Lord, she calls out to anyone who might hear her voice, or in our case, anyone who might read these words, to say, learn from what happened to me. Don't learn it the hard way yourself. She says, my young women and young men have gone into captivity. Look, we need to learn from this. 
the divine righteousness of God will result in the punishment of all who reject his word. God is a righteous God. He's immutably righteous. What does that mean? Immutable means he's not going to change. He's not going to change. God's not going to change his standard of righteousness, his definition of righteousness to match your lustful desires. It doesn't work that way. And as the creator and judge of the universe, he's not going to compromise his righteous judgment to match your sinful life. Doesn't work that way. We would, in, in, our, in our modern day, 24 hours a day news cycle, can you imagine a judge who just constantly said, well, the law says murder is illegal, but you murdered, and you seem like you're sorry for it, so yeah, let's just forget about that law. You can go. We, we, would, rightly, we would rightly be outraged at that. And yet so often, that's exactly what we expect of God, isn't it? God, you've created this world. It's all yours. You have all authority over it. You have all the right to make the laws of this world. You've made these laws for our good. We violated these laws, and now we just want you to kind of change your standard of righteousness to what we want. You may want it to work that way, which we could have a long conversation about how unhelpful that would be, but you may want it to be that way, and you may want to argue with God about that, but for today, just understand, it doesn't work that way. You will be judged not by your standards or anyone else's standards except for the righteous and perfect standard of God. You say, how can anyone live up to the righteous and perfect standard of God? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. The answer is, you can't. You can't. Our only hope is... This doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us as we look to the person of Christ Jesus. That's why Christ came, because the Lord is righteous, and yet the righteous Lord wants to forgive sinners like us. So what did He do? He sent Christ into this world to be righteousness for us, so that by believing in Christ, Christ takes the penalty for our sin and provides us with the righteousness we need to enter into heaven. There will be divine justice. And if we're in Christ Jesus, that justice was meted out and met at the cross. If we reject Christ, we will pay the penalty for all of eternity. That is a grief that we do not want to bear. The Lord is righteous. Notice also in verse 19, there is a grief from misplaced trust. At this point, we as sinners, we kind of want to wiggle out of this a little bit. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Jesus was a great guy. I get what you're saying. God's got to be God. But surely I can do a little something. <laughs> Let me just tell you, from a biblical perspective, you can reject what the Bible says. But just understand what it says. From a biblical perspective, that's misplaced trust because you cannot do it on your own. And notice the grief that comes from a life of misplaced trust. Verse 19. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive 
their strength. You see, this verse reveals Jerusalem's pain and having to live with the reality that she had trusted in all the wrong things. She says, I called out to my lovers. Who are her lovers? Well, that has all the connotations in Hebrew that it would have in English. It speaks of her spiritual harlotry. It speaks of all the idolatrous gods that she followed after, all the idolatrous relationships that she followed after with other nations. It speaks of all the idols that she had trusted in rather than trusting in the God of the covenant. Where were they when it came time for her moment of salvation? Where were they? Nowhere. They deceived me. I thought there was hope in these things. There was no hope in these things. I chased after my money my whole life and then I died. And guess what happened to my money? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine because I was dead. I chased after my own personal leisure so that I had as much time as I wanted to to sit around and do nothing whenever I wanted to. And guess where that got me? Well, nothing always gets you nowhere. I chase after all these things in this world. And at the end of the day, you may not know it yet, but at the end of the day, you know what happens? Where are you going to find them? They're nowhere. They're gone. They deceived you. There's no hope in it. Priests and elders, well, they weren't helped by chasing after these false gods. What are they doing? They're starving to death in the city. The priests and the elders, by the way, that the people looked to and said, well, if they say we're good, if they say God won't hurt us, if they say, look, let's just offer these sacrifices to these false gods, and that maybe that'll help. I mean, who knows? Let's just give it a try, whatever. If the elders and the priests say that, then we should just trust in them. Guess what happened to them? They starved to death. There was no hiding from them. And at the end of the day, Jerusalem looks back and says, my life, was spent trusting in all the wrong things. She had to suffer with the realization that everything that she had pursued in life was a complete waste from an eternal perspective. And there will be many who suffer this same grief in hell because they chose to pursue the idols of this world over Christ. There will be countless souls who knew the truth, rejected the truth because it got in the way of their own selfish pursuits and they're going to have to live with the eternal reality and the eternal sorrow of knowing their entire life was spent trusting in all the wrong things. Again, the only way to avoid this sorrow is to place your faith in Christ, which is faith that will never be misplaced. I guarantee you this from the Scriptures, from my own personal experience, from the life of every believer who's ever lived, faith in Christ is never misplaced. It will always be vindicated. Maybe not on your timetable, maybe not with what you wanted, but in light of eternity, it will never be misplaced. You're never going to get to the end and say, man, I just spent too much time serving Christ. Never. You're never going to get to the end and say, oh, what a sucker I was to follow Christ and believe all that He said. Never. When everything else is burned up and blown away, 
What will be left is Christ and what was done in service to Him. Notice verse 20. Here we have a ninth source of grief. Here we read about a grief that comes from what we might call inner turmoil. Inner turmoil. You can have all the things of this world. You can have the best circumstances of this world. But on the inside, you can be rotting. When I was a kid, we had something like 15 grapefruit trees, nine orange trees, a kumquat tree, and two tangerine trees in our yard. And our yard was like half an acre, three quarters of an acre. That's a lot of citrus. And to be honest with you, to this day, I don't really like citrus. <laughs> Particularly grapefruit. Because they fall all over the place. And you can't even mow the yard before you've got to go pick up 100 million grapefruits sitting around. <laughs> True story. Florida problems for you right there. <laughs> and you know what the worst is? The worst is when you go to pick up a grapefruit, and on the outside it's, it's all yellow and looking like it's supposed to, and you go to pick it up, and on the inside it's green and rotted, and you grab it, and the thing just goes <laughs> right in your hands. That should come out pretty nice on the recording, by the way. It's the worst. Sometimes if they sit there long enough, don't tell my dad I let them sit this long, but sometimes if they sit there long enough, they got, the, they got the skin on the outside and inside they're completely dried out and you grab them and, and just like green poof dust comes out of it. Look, your whole life can look exactly the way you want it to look on the outside. But on the inside it can be absolute rot. That's what we see here. Verse 20, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. I mean, at this point, Jerusalem has been brought to its knees. It's been stopped of all its idolatry. And all that Jerusalem can do is just cry out to the Lord. I mean, at least we're moving in the right direction in Jerusalem. But that's all. She says, I am in distress. The idea there that the, the, the word is describing to be, to be hard-pressed, to be squeezed. Do you ever feel squeezed by life? Do you ever feel like you can never get ahead? you ever try to feel like you're trying to breathe underwater? That's what this word is. It's distress. It's hard-pressed. And then my stomach churns. you ever felt that? <laughs> Interestingly, our junior high guys will appreciate this. The, the Hebrew is literally, my bowels are burning. <laughs> I, I'm just wasting away from the inside out. And, and here, the, the, the stomach, the bowels, it re represents their emotional state. What was their emotional state? They were an emotional wreck. No self-control. It says, my heart is wrung within me. The idea there for rung is kind of what you'd think. Stick a washcloth in a bucket of water and what do you do? You wring it out? That's what their heart felt like. It was completely sapped of all its energy. It, their will was completely broken. You ever got to a place where you're just so 
inwardly beaten down that you just don't feel like you have the will to resist anything or move forward anymore? That's where she was. Why? Well, she very clearly diagnoses the problem. And notice, this is amazing. She doesn't say, because the Babylonians kicked my door down. She doesn't say, because the temple's been destroyed and all our glory with it. Did that happen? Yeah, it did. She doesn't say, because our, our, our army has been defeated. Notice what the cause of this inner turmoil was. Because I have been very rebellious. She traces it all right back to her pursuit of sin rather than submission to the Lord. And she says, in the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. In other words, when, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, what happened to all the people who were outside? Well, they were, if they weren't already taken into captivity, they were killed, basically. So what she says is, inside the house, and there I think it's a picture of what was going on within her, in her own heart. Inside of my heart is the same as it is out in the streets. It's death. It's death. Death characterized her inner man just as much as death described the situation out on the streets. That's what sin does. It kills you. God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. That's what happened to him. His physical death had to wait till later. But in that moment, when he rejected the promises of God, when he rejected the word of God, when he pridefully, with his own self-will, obeyed his lusts and his wife instead of the Lord, on the inside, he died. See, the world seeks inner peace by suppressing the truth by ignoring eternal matters. But this passage reminds us that ignoring God and ignoring the truth can only last so long. Here's the point. You want want to take away from verse 20, it's this. Inner peace comes from submission to God. Inward distress comes from defiance to God. That's what we see here. And in verse 21, it continues. In verse 21, we see a tenth source of grief. And here we see what we might call a grief that comes from a sorrowful pleading. This verse describes the pleas of Jerusalem towards God now that they've realized that they were under His judgment. They're getting it. Wait a minute, Lord, you're righteous. Uh, Okay, Lord, I'm experiencing this because of my own sin. In verse 21, it says, They heard or hear my groaning. Yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now, let them be as I am. What's going on in this verse? Well, what we see initially is that despite their deep groanings that reflect deep grief, there was no one left for Jerusalem to cry out to. You heard my groanings, Lord, but there was nobody else around me. By the way, this is just an 
uh, kind of an aside, you know what the Lord often does? When we will not turn to Him to deal with our sins on the basis of His grace and kindness, when we refuse to run to Him, He often just removes everything else in our life that we would run to instead of Him. Oh, Lord, why have you taken everything away from me? Well, maybe it was because everything in your life was an idol or a distraction from Him. And maybe He is gently through temporal consequences trying to drive you to Christ so that you won't have to face eternal consequences. But notice, what's, what's Israel left to do? What's Jerusalem left to do? Nothing. There's nobody else they could cry out to. The Lord removed every other idol from them. By the way, how kind is that of the Lord? If He had let those other idols stick around, guess what they would have done? They would have run right back to Him. All my enemies have heard my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Who needs enemies when you got friends like that? And who needs friends that are enemies? And then notice it says, You have brought the day you announced. You don't know what this is talking about? Go back on your own time and read Deuteronomy 28. When God made the covenant, when God reiterated the covenant, He said, if you will trust Me and follow My wisdom, follow My law, follow My instruction, My Torah, then these are all the blessings that will come from it. But I am warning you, if you deviate from it, if you reject Me, if you refuse to trust Me, if you follow your own wisdom and your own idols, these are all the curses that will be incurred. Jerusalem gets to the end of it and says, it's exactly what you said was going to happen. By the way, this is true for Jerusalem and the ancient world, but it's true for every human being. God has announced a coming day of judgment the book of Hebrews says it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. Unless the Lord comes back, everyone in this room is going to die. Duh. You know, any, you, you know you have any friends that haven't died? Or are not going to die? It happens to all of us. Just this week I did a funeral. A whole group of people confronted with their own mortality. There is a day coming. The Lord has warned us of it. He has announced it to us. And it will take place just as He has said. God has announced His coming day of judgment and you must not ignore it. What do you do? Well, you do like Israel. You get down on your knees and you plead for mercy from the Lord. Plead for mercy. And God is so kind. Because when we, in faith, come to Him and plead for mercy, He never turns us away. He never turns us away. His steadfast love, His forgiving love, His grace and mercy, they never end. We're going to get to Lamentations chapter 3. And by the way, Lamentations chapter 3 is a little bit more uplifting than Lamentations 1. We've got to get through chapter 2 to get there though, so just you know, have your bootstraps ready to go. But in Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to get right in the middle of this book and we're going to find out that 
God's mercies are new every morning. What do you do? You fall on your knees. Stop crying out for circumstances to change. Stop crying out to your circumstances and cry out to the Lord of mercy for His forgiveness. By the way, that's what's going on at the end of verse 21. When, when Jerusalem says, now let them be as I am, that seems a little vindictive, doesn't it? God, you're punishing me, now punish them. I don't think that's what's going on here. When the Babylonians came and, and God used the Babylonians to judge Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem and Israel and Judah, was they were then taken into captivity, right? So if Judah was ever going to get out of captivity, what had to happen? God was going to have to judge and defeat the Babylonians for their sin. But notice in verse 22, we've got this sorrowful pleading, okay, Lord, defeat these guys so that we can be forgiven and move forward. Notice in verse 22, we find an 11th source of grief. Here we read about a grief that comes from delayed justice. See, this verse describes Israel waiting on the Lord to work justice against their enemies. Okay, Lord, we want you now, we're coming to a place, we're pleading for your mercy, we want your forgiveness, and then we want you to deliver us from the consequences of our sin and the Babylonians. Verse 22, let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. In other words, you keep being righteous, Lord, because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. You say, where, where's the sorrow here? Well, the sorrow here is even after, even after Judah recognizes their sin, recognizes the righteousness of the Lord, and recognizes and pleads for the mercy of God, guess what they still have to do? They still have to endure through the temporary consequences of their sin. It's not like, okay, Lord, give us mercy. Woo, glad that's over. What would they have to do? They had to truly trust in the Lord. They were temporary consequences, temporal consequences when they were taken into captivity. Just as she pleaded for mercy, she also had to recognize that that mercy from God, it's immediate in the sense of He immediately forgives us, but it's in His timing in the sense of when He delivers us from those consequences. I've talked to many of confused believers before who said, I don't understand why I'm still going through this. I ask God to forgive me. Well, He, he, he will forgive you. He, he has forgiven you, but He's allowing you to be sanctified through His discipline, uh, process of discipline. He's, he, he's proving and testing your faith by making you endure the consequences of it. And here's the point. Forgiveness is available in Christ Jesus for all sinners, but that doesn't mean you won't bear the grief of sin until Christ returns. So what's the better option? The better option is in that moment of temptation, say, I'm not going to submit to this temptation. I'm going to avoid the sin. And I'm going to avoid the grief that comes from the sin. You see, in all, these verses describe the way Jerusalem felt when she experienced the fierce anger of the Lord for her sin. And this lament stands in a, as an important warning 
to us about the devastating consequences of sin on our inner man, our soul. You remember in Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus, poor, destitute, but he trusts the Lord. He dies, and where is he at? It's in the bosom of Abraham. Rich man is rich beyond measure. He rejects the Lord and dies, and where is he? He's in Hades. Rich man says, hey, how about letting Lazarus bring me a drop of water? And Abraham says, it doesn't work that way. Rich man says, okay, well, if I can't get a drop of water, how about sending that dude Lazarus back to talk to my brothers so that they don't do the same thing that I've done? I want them to know how bad this is so that they will repent and trust the Lord. Abraham says, it doesn't work that way either. They have the law, they have Moses, and they have the prophets. And if they won't believe what the Word says, then they won't believe a man rising from the dead. Now, of course, that was looking forward to when Christ was raised from the dead and people still wouldn't believe Him. But think about that passage as it relates to lamentations. What did, in that parable, what did the rich man want to do? He wanted to come back and warn everybody he could, this is how bad it is to be punished for your sins. But he couldn't do that. We can't come back. And yet, through the prophets, in Lamentations chapter 1, what do we have? Essentially, we have a first-hand account of how bad it is to be disciplined and punished and to undergo the wrath of the Lord. In these verses, we get a visceral account of the inner turmoil that's caused by sin. This is a warning about sin from those who experienced a small taste of the wrath of God. Jerusalem warns us of the devastating grief that we will experience if we choose to follow sin rather than Christ. Listen, friend. I know this passage goes against everything that we feel in the moment of temptation. I know this passage even contradicts many of our experiences because you say, boy, it just feels so good and that sin worked out for me so well. Don't be fooled by the temporary gratification of sin. Sin is devastating. And it will consume you from the inside out. We pray with me? Lord, we thank You for this warning, as difficult as it is for us to hear. Lord, we recognize that Your wisdom far exceeds ours. And so even in areas where we don't fully understand why things work, help us to just trust what Your Word says. And Lord, as we trust what You say, help us to understand more precisely what it means. And Lord, above all, I pray that You would help us as believers to battle sin so that we will not have to face even the temporary, temporal consequences of sin. And Lord, I pray for any who have not believed in Christ that Your Spirit would convict them of their sin, that they might turn and receive Your free grace. Lord, we love You for the free grace that You have shown to us. Lord, even as we prepare in this next few moments to celebrate the Lord's table, we thank You for the grace that we have because of the work that has been accomplished by Christ Jesus. 
Lord, impress these truths on our hearts even as we continue to worship you now. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.